Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today I'm going to be talking to Nick Gates. We're going to be chatting about his career in wildlife filmmaking, but also his love of plants, an often overlooked subject. And that leads me nicely into the news, because Plant Life, a plant charity, are expecting a boost in Britain's wildflowers, as councils have stopped mowing verges. So this is one unexpected side effect of the lockdown, that we should see more wildflowers this year, which in turn leads to more insects. And if there's more insects, that's more food for birds to feed to their chicks. So potentially a nice biodiversity explosion for this year, one upside of the lockdown. Now, Plant Life have said they'd like councils to delay cutting to the end of August, when flowers have done self-seeding. The other bonus for wildflowers next to roads is that less traffic has meant a reduction in nitrogen, which helps the plants that outcompete wildflowers. So a reduction in this should mean that roadsides will be a little bit more colourful. Now on to my guest this week. Nick Gates is a naturalist, a producer, a vlogger and a writer based in Bristol. He's worked for various BBC nature series, he worked on River Monsters and currently works at Silverback Films on a major British wildlife series. It was absolutely brilliant talking to Nick. He's in his garden so he's talking a lot about garden wildlife as well. And also don't forget to check out Wildlife Exposed TV on YouTube and that's where all the highlights of these podcasts goes and you can see the video messages between us two as we chat along. Anyway, here's how me and Nick got on. Well Nick, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. No worries. So how are you coping with lockdown at the minute? Well, I'm finding it really strange. Um, I always sort of say I'm a bit of an introvert, but I'm really missing the, the social <laughs> side of, of lockdown. You know, it's, you know, there's whole new ways of, of interacting with people that we're learning now, including digital beers, which are a, a new Friday treat. <laughs> I've noticed pub quizzes have become a thing as well, haven't they? People are doing that a lot on, online. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing a pub quiz Thursday night. One of the um, a couple of the people at work have been organising those, which has been really good fun. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I think it's important to stay in touch with people. I mean, I was saying to you before this started, but these podcasts have been a bit like therapy for me, just getting to chat to people, and it's quite uh, quite nice to have a, have a break from from the four walls and whatnot. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I really these those first few weeks that we had when everything was everything was shut, and you would suddenly felt really shut off being able to have these digital chats with people has been a lifesaver. I've really enjoyed it. I've been connecting with friends that I haven't spoken to for a really long time. I've been video calling with my whole family. One of my sisters lives in America. You know, when you've got, you know, I'm from quite a big family, when you've got all members of a family there, it just feels like we're around the Sunday dinner table. Yeah, it's nice. It's kind of makes you appreciate what you have got really, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. But we're not talking about the lockdown today. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, yourself and the work that you do but also kind of garden so it's convenient that you're in your garden while we talk about this but where where did this love of nature start for you? I think it it, it goes right back to my, my earliest memories I can remember as soon as I was able to to crawl and walk um, I wanted to get out in the garden I was very fortunate my grandparents had a, a motor caravan and we used to go on holiday with them and I think you know come the summer holidays my parents would would take me and one of my sisters and and basically give us to my grandparents and we'd go and spend two weeks in somewhere like the new forest and we just spend all day every day outside in nature and I think that really gave me an appreciation of the natural world from a very young age and it's something that has really stuck with me if anything it gets stronger every year because you're you're Sussex originally aren't you is that right 
I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah Sussex, Sussex born and bred. Um, and now I've moved down to Bristol, which is actually where most of my family are from. We're from the West Country originally. So my parents joke that I'm moving back to my roots. <laughs> Recolonising. Yep. <laughs> and I, I remember you from, do you remember Wild Vision? This might be a blast from the past. Yes, I, yeah. I, I remember seeing you on that, which is a collection of young filmmakers. And obviously you've kind of gone on from strength to strength since then. So how, how did you break into, into the wildlife TV industry? Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I remember Wild Vision. It was set up by a couple of friends of, of mine and yours, I'm sure. You know, Jamie and Paul did a fantastic job on that um, and really helped connect a whole variety of different young filmmakers from all sides of the uh, of of the industry. That, that for me was a great step up. I used to work in the city. I was a consultant. I was suited and booted and I can't say I enjoyed it very much, but that's where university led me. And I'm, my first break in telly actually was, I went down to chat to James Smith on Springwatch and he gave me the last gig that was available, which was a story developer role. So I took this three week contract and, and the role of a story developer is to sit in um, the truck and monitor the live cameras and pick out bits of behavior and I just thought I dropped in heaven you know my, my job was <laughs> watch animals doing what they do it's what I do for fun every day and from there you know I just worked my way through different um, companies and I moved down to Bristol and which is where almost all of the um, production side of, of wildlife television is and yeah I worked through a variety of companies you know worked with some brilliant people you know just continued continue doing what I do at the same time which is learning about British wildlife and obviously you're working on what some might consider almost a dream series because quite quite a big one for for UK wildlife yeah this is to be honest I've managed to get a job on the series that I've always wanted to make we're making a big landmark blue chip series which you know blue chip is is, is the name that the industry gives to those really big projects like Planet Earth and Blue Planet. And we're trying to do the equivalent for British wildlife, which for me is a dream come true. I'm absolutely loving it. Well, it's great because obviously we, we see Springwatch and that's absolutely fantastic. And we see maybe these, these one-offs. But I suppose there's never really been a series that spent years and years getting those interesting sequences and, and stories that, that can tell for British wildlife, because there are so many stories that maybe we haven't got the time or people just haven't discovered yet. So I think that's going to be really, really interesting to see what, what comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's what excites me most about it is having a couple of years to film and find these stories across Britain that just haven't been given the, the budgets and the time to really explore in detail before. I mean, there have been some brilliant series about British wildlife in the past and Springwatch you know, they managed to produce some sensational content. It's a series I've worked on as well, and I, and I love Springwatch. I think they do, a, you know, they absolutely fly the flag for British wildlife and really encourage people to get out there and look for it and enjoy it and embrace it. This series is slightly different in, to, in that it's, you know, it's, it's a one-off, it's a five-part series. And what we're trying to do is infuse, you know, as wide an audience as possible. We want to be getting those viewing figures that, you know, the... The planet earth's get and i think we will because i mean you can see in the amount of news the coverage that we're getting at the moment about the natural world you know this lockdown has coincided with this period of phenomenally good weather and people are getting out and noticing wildlife in their gardens they're noticing it on their trips to the supermarkets and you know i, I think there is this huge love of the natural world in britain and i'm hoping that series will deliver everything that the british public want 
Well, I can't wait to see it. It's going to can't come around soon enough. And of course, the other thing that I I know you for because we we went to uh, Snuff Mills in I think it was it Snuff Mills is that where we went. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I di- I didn't realize then that you're quite uh, a keen botanist. Is that fair to say? Or plant? You're interested in plants, aren't you? Yeah, I love plants. I think um, you know my love of plants came secondary to my love of of wildlife. Um, but the more you learn about wildlife, the more you realize that the two are completely entwined. You know, so many species, particularly smaller species, rely on very specific plant species for part or all of their life cycle. Um, and I think, I think my love of botany came out uh, a couple of years ago. I started to learn all of the British butterflies and I started to get really interested in, in the life cycles of these species. And there are so many British butterflies that rely on just one species of, of flower to lay their eggs on. And the caterpillar spends its whole life on that one species. It only eats that one species. And so if you don't have that one species, you don't have the butterfly. You don't have the finished product. If, if there's nothing that it can eat, you don't see this glorious butterfly emerge at the end. So I'm not an expert on butterflies, but obviously one of the ones I do know, the swallowtail butterfly, the, the large ones in Norfolk, which I think is milkweed or, or some kind of parsley yeah, that, they, no. that, they, that they can only have. So, yeah, it does make you think that without these plants, you're not going to get these spectacular insects along with them. Yeah. And, and a lot of our butterflies, surprisingly, you know, not only are they so specific to a particular food plant or a small group of food plants, they also can travel huge distances to find them. So it is something that you know, in your garden or you know, in, in your urban green space, if you've managed to adopt part of a park or something, if you plant those species, there's a very good chance that you will get these exquisitely beautiful butterflies come over to your patch of green space. And I've had all sorts turn up in the garden behind me here just by planting the right species to attract them. So it's fair to say you're fairly green fingered then. And obviously you've, you've transformed your garden over, I think you said a five year period, wasn't it? And it's kind of turned into your own little, little mini nature reserve. So what what made you want to do that? Um, you know, when I when I got this house, it was you know I looked out on the garden and I saw what you know what I considered a very standard garden. It was um, a rectangular strip of lawn, what I what I call the, the monoculture of grass, and then down each side were a few shrubs. And I thought to myself, you know, nothing's gonna, nothing's going to be attracted to that. There's no food for you know many species. There's very little shelter. And I thought, you know, I. I want to get as many different species as possible into my garden because there's nothing nicer than coming home, sitting in your garden and being surrounded by nature. And I find it really you know, sort of like therapy, you know, nature bathing. And by... I like that. That's a great. And is that, a, is that something you've coined or have you come across that nature bathing? You know, I, I, nature bathing is something I've seen. Again, I've seen on, I think, Twitter. Um, it's, I don't know who coined the term originally, but it, it basically just means, you know, just immersing yourself in the natural world. And by coming home and sitting in my garden, which is, you know, a consistent space, for I know where I can look in my garden and find different species. I know where I can go and find my slow worms. I know where I can go and see my newts. I know where I can go and find really interesting ladybirds. That's what I wanted. I wanted to create a space that was, that was mine and reliable, that, you know, I could keep going back to and know that if I went to that space, I'd be able to just immerse myself in the natural world. Since you started, has there been a difference in biodiversity uh, for rewilding your garden? I think so. I mean, in fact, I, almost, almost certainly, it's, it's always hard to see, you know, it's always hard to look at your garden and say, you know, what is the change that I've made to the garden, the reason that that species has turned up. But I've had a few species of moth and butterfly, which are so specific to their host plant, that 
you know, there's, there's a very good chance that they wouldn't have been there otherwise. So encouraging my nettles to grow and encouraging hops has brought in commas, laying eggs on those plants. I actually grow a vegetable patch, much to the amusement of my family, entirely for butterflies. So I grow various different brassicas <laughs> and seeing the large whites and small whites laying their eggs on those, they weren't there before. I might have had one flit through the garden on my hunt for food, but now I get dozens hatch every year in the garden because I know that they're feeding on the plants that I give them. I dug a pond. Now, again, I did, I did actually find one newt before I dug the pond, you know, because newts are terrestrial, as you know, for much of their, much of the year. But I found, found this one newt and I was like, brilliant. I've already got newts in, in the area. I'm going to put in a pond. And now, you know, I go out there at night with a spotlight and I can see 20, 30 newts doing their courtship displays, all interacting, three different species. I was amazed. This year I found great crested newts. I mean, oh, brilliant. I found three male crested newts displaying. It's, you know, it's absolutely sensational. How, I mean, how can you beat that uh, as nature on your doorstep? It's great watching that dance, isn't it? Where they kind of wiggle their tail and they just kind of entice the female. So I've, I've got palmates and smooth in, in mine at the moment. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I do the same. I'll, I'll let my dog out at night and I'll just get the torch and have a look in the pond. And it is, you know, there'll be diving beetles and all kinds of stuff swimming around. It's, it's another yeah, world. It's the, sort of stuff, it's the sort of stuff you enjoy doing as a kid. And I've never lost that bug. You know, I, I honestly, you know, go out with a torch in the evening. I'm so excited every time I find that, that display, see that piece of behavior. It's like turning over pebbles at a beach or crabbing in a rock pool. Those, those small things where you, you get a little reward because you've seen into a life that you wouldn't have otherwise noticed. Definitely. I, I, I can't help it that if I'm out and about, there's that, that 10 year old still in me. If I see a log or, or a stone, I think there's going to be something under that. Yeah. I, I've got to do it. I've got to check because you never know. And you, that one day where you're like, oh, wow, I've not seen that before or, you know, something unusual. It just, just can't help myself. I can completely relate to that. I'm exactly the same. <laughs> when, you, when you cross a bridge or a river, you look in just to try and see the tail of a fish in the current or see a stone, you turn it over. You know, that, that's me every time. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, had a, I had a peek on your website the other day and I saw that you are also a beekeeper which is something I know relatively little about. So is that something you've got in your garden or is that somewhere set up elsewhere? No, that's something I've got in my garden. So I fell into beekeeping a little bit accidentally. I found uh, some plans online for a type of hive called a top bar hive. There's a chap called Philip Chandler. He goes by the hashtag, the barefoot beekeeper. And <laughs> I was really interested in beekeeping because you know bees are essentially a domestic animal now, or the honeybee is essentially a domestic animal now. For hundreds of years, we've been cultivating them and trying to perfect this this creature to give us a very uh, kind temperament you know we don't want it to sting us when we're harvesting the honey and we want it to be able to produce high volumes of honey and I thought you know I'd, it's it's basically become industrialized and I wanted to look at beekeeping from you know uh, sort of rewilding the honeybee you know I want to I want to have honeybees in my garden but I want them to just be able to do their thing completely naturally and so this style of, of beehive called a top bar hive encourages the bees to draw natural comb. You know, there's no foundation put in there. They just draw the, the natural shape of honeycomb hung on the bars that are in the hive. And I don't use any insecticides. So my, they, my bees are varroa resistant just naturally. It's a feral swarm that I collected locally. I don't feed them any sugar because in my opinion, that's really bad for their gut health. And a lot of research is being done on bee gut health and showing that actually by giving them these very high concentrations of sugar, stealing their honey, which is rich in so many different qualities, um, and giving them this very simple sugary substance, it's wrecking their guts. 
and gut health is you know increasingly interesting for humans but it's also incredibly important for animals of course that's the equivalent to us being you know us living on a diet of potatoes i think it just it just isn't good for them and you can tell how strong a colony is each year my colony has gone from strength to strength it's grown it's got through the winter okay which means that they've put enough honey reserves aside the the plus side is i've planted about seven fruit trees in my garden and they are now getting bumper crops of apples and pears because you know i know that i have the right volume of uh, of honeybees to to pollinate those species and that there are some species that can only be pollinated by um by honeybees and apples and pears almost exclusively rely on honeybees to pollinate them so it's been it's been a learning curve i've, I've taken a very hands-off approach to beekeeping just tried to let the bees get on and do what they do you know bees were doing their thing long before we got them into hives and they're brilliant at it they know exactly what they're doing they've got an incredible communication system they know exactly how to get through a cold spell a dry spell a wet spell they know what they're doing you know the, the old saying bees know best is uh, is very true and it's just enjoyable to watch them and see them do what they do it's nice to hear that everything's connected in a way than in your garden because they're pollinating the fruit trees presumably the birds are eating the fruit and it's all everything's linked yeah, and, and it's lovely to see, you know, that's, that's part of the fun of being a naturalist, I think, is seeing all of those little stepping stones. And it's, it's, it's the best when you can see those stepping stones connecting with each other. And as you say, I do leave a lot of the fruit um, in the autumn for the thrushes, um, particularly the winter thrushes that come in, the red wings and field fairs. I've just started to entice those in by leaving, leaving down dozens of apples on the ground for them. And also, again, the butterflies in the autumn, you know, species like peacocks love feeding on fallen fruit they, they get all the sugars from them um, and so yeah it's, it's been wonderful to see those stepping stones all connecting with the different components of the garden and actually you know I was talking about the pond earlier the bees it's very clear watching them you know the, some of the colony the, some of the worker bees their job is just to bring water into the hive and so I love watching the bees go down to the pond sip up the tiniest little volumes of water and there's a little conveyor belt of bees going between the hive and the pond non-stop well it's funny you say that because i noticed that with my pond it's the first time i picked this up this year whereas i'll sometimes just you know sit and watch the pond it's black with tadpoles at the minute but i noticed a lot of honeybees uh, coming down and drinking from the pond i didn't know i mean I, I assume they drank but i didn't know they would actually come and do that so are they doing that to take water back to the hive do you say or are they they're just doing that for themselves no that so you know as as, as you know bees have got different jobs in a hive and the worker bees you know some of them go out and collect pollen um, which are the ones that you see with the little yellow baskets or whatever colour pollen. Um, that's the sort of classic, classic honeybee look. Some of them look like they're going back to the hive empty-handed, but actually it's because their second stomach is full of nectar. And then the third type of worker is those that are going to collect honey. Uh, sorry, those that are going to collect water. And they use those components to make the honey. So the, the nectar go, you know, goes and is mixed up with a little salivary uh, concoction, and that makes honey. The worker bees take water and they dilute the honey to feed that to the young brood and the colony continues to persist like that. Oh, wow. I never knew that. You learn something new every day. Yeah. Again, I, again, I only knew that. I only learned that by watching them and then reading a bit more about it. And, you know, every time I watch the hive, I spot something and think, oh, why are they doing that? And that's, you know, again, one of the joys of watching the natural world is just trying to work out why creatures do what they do. And sometimes you just see it. You see a honeybee collecting water and going back and forth to the hive and you think, ah, it must be taking them. What's it doing inside the hive? Um, and it's just a great way to learn. I think, I think bees are a brilliant, brilliant educational tool. Honeybees are a brilliant educational tool because it introduces you to that world of bees in general. And there are hundreds of different varieties or hundreds of species in Britain. Well, I think if, if nothing else, the current situation is going to mean that people are going to get to know their garden wildlife incredibly well. And you do kind of 
almost developed characters. You're like, well, I know, like you mentioned earlier, the slow worms are in that corner of the garden and, you know, maybe the wren nests in that corner of the garden. So uh, again, it's one positive out of a very, you know, unfortunate situation that we are getting to know our wild neighbours a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, in the lockdown situation, the, the best thing we could hope for is this weather. I mean, it's allowing people to get out and appreciate, you know, if they've got access to a garden or a local piece of parkland that they can walk through, um, it shows the importance of those urban green spaces as well, because if you don't have a garden, just being able to get out and enjoy those um, those moments in nature, I think is absolutely vital for our mental health in the current situation. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't couldn't agree more with that. So I'm going to end on this final question, which is kind of going back to more your filmmaking career. But is there a nature story that you would like to tell that you haven't yet or maybe maybe no one has yet, but there's something that you feel needs to kind of go to the forefront? Um, that's an interesting question. There is there is one that I've been wanting to film in my garden for a long time. And I occasionally get approached by younger filmmakers who say, how can I break into the industry? What can I do now? And I always say, you know, go make a short film, make a short film that shows your passion and your understanding of the natural world. And the one species that I always come back to is the house sparrow. Um, house sparrows have got a fascinating ecology, the way they behave in my garden, the way the different individuals interact, they're sort of a colonial nester. So you get lots and lots of them and they have a strict hierarchy, strict pecking order, um, and I would love to see a really detailed film made about the life cycle of a house sparrow. Um, seeing them burst through the garden, fighting. There's, there's so many different layers of interaction there. And I'd love to peel back those layers and understand why they're doing what they're doing. So I'd like to see the, the natural history of the house sparrow. Yeah, well, and there's been a decline, hasn't there? A massive decline in house sparrows. So, you know, it's a story that's worth telling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, they're hugely valuable as a, as a garden species because they eat aphids. You know, their chicks are fed on aphids. So they do a wonderful service to a wildlife gardener. Um, so if you can provide, you know, roses or um, raspberries or other species that attract aphids, then and you can provide them nesting opportunities, uh, there's a good chance you can try and entice house sparrows back into your neighbourhood. I think I can hear a sparrow actually in the background. I don't know if, that, if I'm right on that. Yeah, no, you're spot on there. Oh. They're nesting around. I've got about five nests that I can see from this position, actually, in the eaves um, of, uh, of, of my house and my neighbours' houses. Um, you know, they're, they're in all of the roof spaces along here. Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm in danger of sounding like a bird as soon, actually, if I carry on like this, kind of <laughs> identifying birds by call. Um, it's addictive. <laughs> it's a slippery slope. Uh, look, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me. No, thank you very much, Jack. And, uh, you know, I think the work that you're doing is absolutely superb. The flag that you've managed to fly for British, British underwater life in particular. And I enjoy every time you post a little update on Twitter or, or one of the other social media channels. I thoroughly enjoy seeing the pictures or videos that you've been taking of our underwater world. And so thanks for that. Oh, cheers. That's, that's very kind of you. But yeah, I'll, uh, I'll catch you next time. Cheers. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. It's always a pleasure talking to Nick and it's great to see all the wildlife flitting about in the background uh, of his webcam there. Now on to Nature Reserve of the Week and this week I've decided to go for RSPB Minsmere, so quite a well-known reserve. It's a thousand hectare reserve in Suffolk and has a mixture of lowland wet grassland, shingle vegetation, reed beds and lowland heath, so a huge array of habitats. It's probably best known for its bitterns which can come very close to the hides, of which there are eight. It's also great for otters, bearded tits, marsh harriers and water voles. The heathland has nightjar, natterjack toads, Dartford warblers and silver studded blues. 
some of the more wooded areas get nightingale and you also get stone curlew, a kind of East Anglian favourite bird. Now it's not just birds, you get adders, large numbers of fish with probably the most famous stickleback in Britain having lived there, Spineless Sigh, who was on Springwatch in 2015 and was an unexpected hit for the series. I think people liked the underdog aspect of Spineless Sigh. I was actually filming for Springwatch on that series and I went to Minsmere to do some of the live stuff and I went to see Spineless Sigh. So I didn't film him, but I saw him. So it was quite nice to kind of see a celebrity stickleback. It's not very often you get to say that. In terms of facilities, they're top-notch. A nicely set out visitor centre, a car park, toilets, educational rooms, shop with all the usual RSPB waffle, and a large calf. Though I have to admit when I went, the cake was a little bit so-so. It was nothing special. One of my gripes, however, is that they charge £9 to enter. And I know it's a fantastic reserve, it's a big reserve, there's a lot of upkeep, but I think that's a bit steep personally profiting off some of the star species and the fact that Springwatch have been there. So that's my only gripe with it. Obviously, if you're an RSPB member, you don't pay anything, you just go in. But I think that's a little bit a little bit high there. But apart from that, it's a fantastic reserve. And if you've never been, there's so much to do. You I mean, you could easily spend a couple of days um, walking around that reserve. There's a lot to photograph. Now, I'm going to end on, on a question I was sent in on Instagram. And this was from a, a chap called Benny. And he said... Agricultural runoff, uh, killing killing rivers and whatnot, how can you highlight it and prevent it? Well, the best thing to do is to report it to the Environment Agency. If you have a run a runoff of chemicals or anything that doesn't look right, the Environment Agency have a hotline and they will respond to it as quickly as they can and, and if needs be, prosecute whoever is responsible for that. And I should just say, I, am, I do take questions at the end of these podcasts. So if you have a question, send it in via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon, whatever, and I'll tag these onto the end of each podcast. So it can be about an upcoming podcast, it can be anything really, and I'll and I'll put that in there. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I know I, I enjoy talking to Nick greatly. He's a really, really talented botanist and all-round naturalist, really. And I will catch you in the next one. I've been Jack Perks. This has been the Bid It's Podcast, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>